This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome to The Reader's Karamazov, a podcast about literature and philosophy. We are your hosts, the bastard sons of Hegel. Hi, I'm Carl Bookmarks. I am Soren Rearegard. We are also joined in absentia in spiritus by our third host and uh, executive producer, Friedrich Peachy, who's off in the woods of the Alps, currently trying to cure himself of syphilis under the idea that God alps those who alps themselves. He will be joining us at a later date. Carl, do you want to talk a little bit about what this podcast is about? Um, well, I think it's just a sort of literary, philosophical look at some classic books, the world around us, what's happening, and an attempt to enrich our, our lives with this kind of philosophical depths. What would you say is the relationship between literature and philosophy, exactly? That's a great question, Carl. I think that it's worth looking at works of literature for their philosophical dimensions, um, because you get something out of it that you don't get out of maybe more typical philosophy. Maybe some philosophers you can get some literary content from, somebody like Plato, certainly. But a lot of other philosophers aren't as interested in the literary dimensions. And by looking at great works of literature, what we can do is try to figure out what was motivating the authors and what was in their thought process as they were writing. And not in a sense of extracting anything systematic. We are, after all, the bastard and rebelling sons of Hegel. But thinking about philosophy maybe as some sort of lived experience, um, philosophy done in life rather than philosophy that is done in a classroom or uh, sitting off by yourself. How do, we, how do we live philosophy? And literature can help us see that uh, through the stories it tells, through the characters it develops. Um, and so I think it's worth, it's worth exploring and, and taking some time over. Yeah, that's, that's really great, Soren. I would add to that... Um... There's a the critic, Raymond Williams, has said, you know, literature provides for us a certain structure of feeling. And I would sort of amend that to say uh, that literature explores the, the realm of possible experience, not just experience and not just possibility. Um, and what great literature does for us is gives us the, the shape, the depth, the breadth of what a possible experience could look like for anyone. Um, if we can play out that kind of possible experience for ourselves, we're better able to live the kind of life we might want to live um, and sort of experience by secondhand a different way of going about the world that we hadn't really been shown prior. Can you say a little bit more about that phrase, structure of feeling? I've always really liked that, um, that phrase coming out of Raymond Williams. Um, but w what does he mean by that? And what do you think that the application is for us as we're looking at literature and philosophy? 
you know, Williams is driving it a way that a, a culture or a group of people will have a sense of their lives, a sense of the meaning of their lives and the experiences that they're having or able to have at a certain moment in time. Um, but he's careful to say that, you know, a structure of feeling can't be sort of perfectly diagrammed or perfectly pinned down um, at any one point in time. It's, it's more like a, a sense um, in the old definition of common sense, as in like a census communis, the thing which keeps people together in their experience of life. That's really wonderful. One of the things that I think is great about great literature is that it refuses to be contained in small boxes. And so whereas we would want um, to take a piece of literature and say, well, how can we make it fit into our preconceived notions of things? The literature itself is usually straining, sometimes very visibly straining against those constrictions and saying, there's a messiness here that is going on, but there's still some sort of form there. It's not completely formless. It's not pure emotion or miasma or anything like that. It's a real, there's a real form, but it's not one that's going to fall um, in a sort of color by numbers, just a very straightforward way. So I really like that. And um, that's what we're going to be doing here uh, on the Reader's Karamazov. We've got a lot of great books lined up. We're going to be picking from all over the world, from all cultures that we can, and just trying to figure out what are they doing with the literature that they're, um, that they're writing and how does it express their worldview there for us. So I was going to say there's another good rule of thumb definition of, a, of great literature that I really like, which is um, great literature stands as starkly as possible against the period piece. So if you look at any piece of literature from around the same time as a work of great literature, it clearly has you know very few readers afterward. It's sort of fallen by the wayside. People don't tend to enjoy it anymore. That is, of course, if you know they've been exposed to it. You you can say, well, the great work of literature has somehow transcended the the problems of that specific time, such that people still care about 19th century debates about utopianism or whatever, for instance, in the Notes from Underground. These things transcend that specific debate and become something a little bit more human or humane. That's really good, Carl. Um, one thing that worries me about some certain contemporary approaches to literature is just that there's this demand that we can only value literature for what it brings us in our immediate present. Um, and I think that there are reasons that people are interested in that and, and there may be even good reasons for that. But there's also this sense of what do we miss when we are um, unable to listen to the past and the things that are weird and don't make sense about the past, the things that seem strange to us or even boring to us. Really, that's, a, I think, a failure of our imagination to enter into those ideas and those debates. And so, you know, I know you and you know me and we know that um, we're interested in the, the present moment and what's going on. But, but we also think that there's a value to be had in taking the time to slow down and live beyond ourselves and beyond our own heads and to live in somebody else's reality for a little bit. So that's what we're going to do today, certainly. Um, we're not tiptoeing into the kiddie pool at all. We are, we are jumping off the deep end, um, hitting our head on the rock cliffs as we go down uh, with the Brothers Karamazov, which uh, is not only the namesake for our podcast, but 
many people consider to be perhaps the greatest novel ever written, certainly one of the richest philosophical novels ever written. And uh, we're going to tackle that. This is part one of four. We're going to go through, there are four parts in the, in the Brothers Karamazov. We're going to go through them one by one and talk about them um, uh, podcast by podcast because there's just too much to talk about in one podcast um, with this book. It's, it's a monster. It's almost 800 pages of sheer delight and nougat goodness. Um, do, is there anything you want to say about um, Fyodor Dostoevsky, the author of this novel, before we get going? wise brilliant menacing terrible man of his time that's how i think about you by the way (laughs) (laughs) there's a great sort of book even longer than any of dostoevsky's books themselves on the man and his life and his failings and his triumphs um joseph frank's sort of monumental dostoevsky book um i think it's in five parts so that's where to go if you want to know any and everything about his literary life um, and, you know, the connections between his life and his books. Um, I just know, you know, a few anecdotes about the man. Um, his, he was a gambler. He was So unlike Kenny Rogers, he did not know <laughs> when to hold it or know when to fold it. He was uh, often in debt because of his gambling. Um, he wrote the gambler like in a week or two just to, <laughs> just to pay off some of his pay off his debts yeah he's so he's he's a fascinating guy and i think we both like dostoevsky a lot because um well speaking for myself i like both that he's got so many interesting ideas floating around in his works and his works are so bizarre in a lot of ways it's actually surprising that he has lasted and continued to be considered a classic because I think in some ways, this is sort of a cliche, but I think he's sort of still ahead of his time. He's still ahead of our time in what he's doing in a lot of ways. His, his use of, of multiple voices and just these strange outbursts that happen in the middle of his novels that don't seem to relate to anything, his very complex plotting um, can be off-putting to people, especially in something like The Brothers Karen Mazov, which is so dang long. If you're listening out there and you've never read Dostoevsky, I would say don't start with The Brothers Karen Mazov, or do and follow along with our podcast, but maybe go to something shorter like Notes from Underground, which is going to give you a good sense of the style and the weirdness of Dostoevsky, but it's only 130 pages and it's a little bit less complex. And so it might give you a better idea of... of um, <laughs> what he's up to and you can see if it's for you or not. But. Yeah, definitely uh, Notes from the Underground is the place to start. Uh, it's short, pithy, and you get a, a clear sense of the intensity of his characters and Dostoevsky's small c conservatism in a, a really broad sense of that term. Can you say more about that? What do you mean when you say that Dostoevsky is a small c conservative? Obviously, we we think about conservative these days and we think about our fearless leader um, taking the sins of the world onto himself and emerging stronger, free of COVID. Um, but, um, but what do you mean when you say he's a small C conservative? So more in the sort of intellectual tradition of conservatism. I remember it well. Thinkers like Hannah Arendt could be considered a small C conservative. In general, in the sense that one's outlook about the future of organized society is pessimistic. And there is something that ought to be conserved either in the past or the present rather than just relinquished as we move forward. Proceed with caution as we move forward in, in time socially. 
that's kind of how I define small C conservatism. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but there's a, there's a uh, quote I like from the great English conservative thinker, Michael Oakeshott. And he says something along the lines of, there are a million ways to break society and there's usually only one way to fix it. And so it, it lends itself to a certain, as you said, a certain pessimism about what's happening in society. It's not that the conservative thinkers think that things are great. It's that they recognize that they could be a whole lot worse. Yeah. And I think they, they try often to define sort of in a negative fashion, what uh, can be conserved from what is out there, as you're saying, in the, in the realm of possibilities, which sort of links back to, you know, this idea that literature is about possible experience. For Dostoevsky, there are all kinds of possible experiences that are filled with terror, spite, disgust, hate, loathing, self-loathing. And you see that in a lot of his characters. Um, so that's kind of where I'm coming from a little bit. I think I first heard that term from Chris Hedges, who's also, I think, a kind of small C conservative dooms doomsayer about our current political moment. Just so listeners know, as they're listening, um, this is Soren speaking. Um, I would probably fall more along that spectrum of small C conservative thinkers. Carl's maybe a little bit less like that, um, although he has his pessimistic moments as well. But it's heartening to hear you describe it that way, because that's what I want the, the conservative intellectual tradition to be. I don't want it to be people holding up pictures of Mussolini and cheering or something <laughs> or, or, or pictures of like white picket fences in the 1950s America, right? It's not that. That's not the power of conservative intellectualism. It's the recognition that at any given moment, there's a lot of crap out there. But there's all, there are also things that are worth saving from the fires of time, right? So how, exactly. do, we, how do we pluck out what's good there um, and refine what's bad? Yeah, something I like about that definition now is that will we, would we say that classical liberalism is now a sort of small C conservative? I hope not. I don't want to be associated with that. But who knows? Um, but yeah, and I think something that brings Soren and I together is this idea that you always have to find the best possible version of your interlocutor's argument, make it as strongly as possible before proceeding. We're not really interested in hot takedowns and hot takes, <laughs> though we no. do like them at times. We're, um, we're more into cold cuts here. So. <laughs> you know, you're absolutely right. And, and we're going to see that in part two, very famously um, in the middle of part two of, of the, the Brothers Karamazov. Dostoevsky, who is a, in, in many ways, at least a, a faithful Orthodox Christian in the, in the big O sense of the word, he's a, he's a Russian Orthodox uh, believer, and he is throughout his life, uh, he's got some, some weirdnesses in there, but, but he gives this giant section over to what's become the most famous part of the book, which is called the Grand Inquisitor. And it's the Ivan, the atheistic brother Karamazov, who's making what is it? admittedly an extremely compelling argument for atheism for uh, based a sort of around the problem of evil it's it's incredible and it's compelling and that's the sort of fair-mindedness that's so often missing from from writers and thinkers they want to take the weakest version of their enemies arguments and attack those and it's not out of a spirit of understanding it's out of a spirit of point scoring and so Dostoevsky doesn't seem like he's super interested in that, although he has some very harsh criticisms, um, as we'll see today. Yeah, and, and you're in good company there, Soren. I'll, I just have to note one of our, uh, in the literary tradition, right, there's a famous critic of Dostoevsky, Mikhail Bakhtin, and this idea of the dialogic is 
is something that he harps on in Dostoevsky. And it's sort of in the history of ideas, it's a really important moment in the history of the novel where he's saying, with Dostoevsky, we have someone who's willing to totally go against one idea and one strain of ideas in his novel with another character. And that other character, in this case, Ivan, is not subsidiary to the author's worldview. He doesn't ultimately act as a foil for the author's own personal views. He acts as the most impressive antagonist that he can muster to his own worldview. So they are dialogical. They do not speak in a monological way. It's kind of the idea. That's really great. I like that a lot. And I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Dostoevsky is so good at cr creating compelling arguments that are going to differ from what, where he ultimately falls, but not just making them sort of paper tigers, but giving them real body and flesh. On that note, let's, let's go ahead and start talking about part one here. Um, we're going to give a little bit of a plot summary. But one way we can see his dialogic mind at work here is we're given three brothers. We've got Dimitri, who's the oldest, and he is very much, he's called a sensualist. Um, although actually all three brothers are called sensualists in some ways, but he's the most sensual of the sensualists. He lives a life devoted to pleasure. And then we have Ivan, who is sort of the rationalist, who believes in the power of the mind and believes in the senses and doesn't want to believe anything beyond that. And then we have Alyosha, the, the faithful one, and he is the novice monk. He's trained to be an Orthodox monk. And he, it's not so much that he's an optimist as it is that he believes in people, even when they don't deserve it. He believes in his father, Fyodor, who's a terrible, terrible man. He believes in his brother, Ivan, even though he's a sworn atheist, he believes in his brother, Dimitri, even though he's going to leave his fiance and take up with the, the village floozy, right? He believes in those people very passionately. But what's interesting is Dostoevsky doesn't give us a version that he could have given us, which is where Alyosha is this uncomplicated hero who's the one who comes along and is, is correcting everybody's mistakes, right? Alyosha himself is very prone to these weird lapses, not knowing what to do. He's constantly being embarrassed. And so we get a, a kind of a fuller picture of what Dostoevsky's getting at. It's Alyosha's not really, even though he's probably the main protagonist of the book, he's not the hero of this story, except in maybe in some very complicated ways. So let's start and let's talk just a little bit about what happens in this um, section. It's kind of amazing, right? I guess when you rate an 800 page book, you can do a lot of throat clearing, but Part one, honestly, not a lot happens plot-wise. We're going to start to accelerate a plot. The main focus of this book, I'm not going to say too much, uh, in case you haven't read this 150-year-old book, what are you doing with your life? Get on that. But hey, Everybody's got stuff to do. <laughs> I've got my Netflix to get through on. I can't read Dostoevsky. Uh, but we'll save that for next time. But but the central part of this book is, is basically centered around um, – a law dispute. I'll be vague about it for now, but we don't even have that yet. We don't have, we haven't gotten to the main meat of what this book is. We're 160 pages in at this point. And really all we've gotten is a bunch of characters, <laughs> but we, we kind of see the interactions between the characters as they go along. We get um, the backstory here. So Fyodor Karamazov shares the same name as the author, by the way, first name Fyodor. The, uh, the father is basically a useless lout. He's a drunk He's gotten a lot of money over the course of his life, and he's possibly spent even more than that. 
Um, he lives his days idly. He doesn't do anything. Worst of all, he seems to be the sort of self-sabotager who always almost intentionally says the wrong thing to get people riled up at him. He's always bursting into situations. And instead of making peace or, or smoothing things over, he just rubs salt in the wound and makes people hate him even more than they already do. So we have him and we get the story here. He had, he had a wife whom he sort of tricked into marrying him. She gave him Dimitri, the oldest child, and then she died. He married again, and then his second wife uh, gave him Ivan, and then Alyosha, and then she very promptly died as well. She couldn't stand being around him anyway either. Uh, and so now he lives mostly by himself in a somewhat large house in town. Uh, he's got a servant, Grigory, who's very strange, um, very taciturn, and um, kind of awesome. Uh, and his wife are there. And then um, this other very strange servant guy, Smirnikov, who's always around. He's always growling and snarling. And, and Dostoevsky, even here, we'll explore this more later, but even in this section, he strongly suggests that Smirnikov is in fact um, the illegitimate child of Fyodor, um, that he fathered by, essentially by raping a woman who was me mentally disabled. Um, and she gave birth to him and promptly died. And so he, Smirnikov grew up in this household, kind of, sort of. So we get all these characters. And um, the main conflict of part one centers around Fyodor's conflict with Dimitri over two things, money and women, right? The two things that make their, their world go around, at least. Dimitri is, a, is an army officer, but he is always spending way too much money, kind of like Dostoevsky himself. He's always spending way more money than he actually has. He's always in debt. He's gotten himself engaged to a lovely young woman named Katerina, um, who's a very rich young woman. But he's decided that he doesn't want her anymore. He wants Grushenka, who is the basically the town the town whore. And um, she, like the Beach Boys, she gets around. So Dimitri has decided that he's madly in love with her. The problem being that Fyodor has also decided that he's madly in love with her. And it, it is sort of a in some ways, it seems like it's a situation of what Rene Girard would describe as a mimetic rivalry, where both father and son are interested in the same woman, but it's not really about the woman who seems to be, I mean, she, she's described as being relatively pretty, but nothing really special, but they are both inflamed with desire for her. And so they have this conflict that's going on that's about that, but it's also about money because Dimitri needs money and Fyodor doesn't want to give it to him. So they, we have a meeting at the monastery well, where Alyosha stays, where Alyosha's sort of mentor, Father Zosima, um, tries to mediate between them. And that doesn't go well at all. And then um, some other random things happen and um, they go back home. Alyosha shows up at Fyodor's house, tries to make peace with him. And then Dmitri barges in, convinced that Grushenka is there and he beats his father. He, he kicks him around and... Um, does quite a number on him and then leaves and says, I'm going to come back and kill you. And uh, so that's, that's, that's pretty much what happens, right? There's a lot of other stuff, kind of incidental stuff that goes on in, in this part, but um, that's, those are the main thing. Those are the, the highlights for sure. What stuck out to you reading through part one um, in terms of its philosophical and literary content? Well, I think people will see as we go along in this cast that you are more of the details person and I'm more of the <laughs> schemes person. So, you know, people I think have quibbled a little bit with what you said about Grushenka and this idea of 
Dimitri as the, a, a great sensualist having two competing loves, Grushenka and Katerina Ivanovna. There's this love in Grushenka of baseness. It's kind of off and translated as, um, and that's a really big Dostoevsky theme is love of basement, baseness, the allure of baseness. How is it that people um, can love only what's good and pure and ideal and whole? There's something also in people, maybe something stronger, that loves what's fragmentary, dirty, alluring, naughty, raunchy, disgusting, and something that kind of imperils you, a sort of, you know, sadist impulse, perhaps, compared to this sort of um, purity impulse. So that's kind of one duality scheme that's played out. And then it's sort of important to note as we frame the whole book that the three sons are often seen as, you know, part of a scheme and there's multiple schemes that apply, right? They're all Karamazovs and the, and the Karamazov name is often tied through Fyodor with sensuality or some sort of this qualia or thisness of being in the world, right? But each one has a sort of different valence. I think another uh, a way that's kind of, it's often glossed is Dimitri is the sensualist, Alyosha is the spiritualist, and um, Ivan is the, the intellectual. And it's kind of interesting to note that their order of birth reverses the, the platonic tripartite soul, right? So in, in Plato's theory of a, of a self, which sort of precedes the Freudian tripartite self, the spirit is on top, then the intellect is second, and the senses are what is most base, right? But in the hierarchy of the brothers, the oldest is the sensual, the middle is the mental, the intellectual, and the third is the spiritual. So Dostoevsky, again, is already, he's playing with what might be considered his own worldview. He's sort of wrenching at it. And he's also wrenching at himself by making the, the worst character by far in the book named Fyodor, his own name. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to jump in here um, because I'm contractually obligated to bring this up since I'm, I've named myself after him. But when you're talking about the tripart div- division there, it, what it brings to my mind is the, um, the three stages of life that are suggested by um, Soren Kierkegaard, who's not, he's almost a sort of a contemporary of Dostoevsky, comes a little bit before Dostoevsky, would not possibly have read him because nobody was reading Kierkegaard at this point. But I think that they are both locked into some similar ideas. And and partly that's because they are both practicing Christians in an age of sort of dissolving Christianity and Christendom. They're also, I think, both arguably small C conservative thinkers, as you've brought up. And so they're kind of tuned into a lot of the same wavelengths here. And so one idea that that Kierkegaard brings up in his writings is this, um, you, you have this sort of division or progress of the soul. You start out in what's called the aesthetic stage where you're interested in immediate sensual gratification. So that would be much like Dimitri. And then you move into the realm of the ethical, um, which is the very, the universal and the logical. And that's certainly like what, what Ivan is after. He's after some sort of order to the world and right behavior, even though he doesn't believe in God or anything like that. He believes in this, a sense of order and right behavior. And then you have the move 
from there or the leap as Kierkegaard would call it into the religious sphere of existence. And that's represented by Alyosha. Um, and that is where you can sort of embrace both the aesthetic and the ethical and move beyond them into a, a realm of faith where you accept the, the bad things that happen to you and you believe that they will become good through God. And, and I think that that, you know, I don't want to make too much of that, but I, but I do think there's something to that in, in the book, right? Especially in this idea of Alyosha, the, 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 the faithful one, really encapsulating a lot of what his other brothers have as well, but then moving beyond them into sort of the spiritual realm. Because even though he would like to deny it, maybe he is a sensualist like his brothers and like his father. He gets a love note from a young girl and he blushes about it, right? He gets attention from Grushenka, who by all rights, he should find very uh, distasteful, but he's still kind of blushing about it, right? And so uh, so he has those elements within him as well, working within him. Yeah, but, and that's, that's symbolized in the novel when he wants to live a life solely in a monastery with his sort of mentor and elder, Father Josima. But he is told you have to go you have to leave the monastery and live out in the world. And he obeys that order. But on the threes, I feel like I have to bring up my namesake as well. But this is also just to say that there is no one scheme with these, with these threes. Plato, Kant, Hegel, Britney Spears, they all have these important systems of threes, right? Yeah. Um, hit, me, every... hit me baby one more time with uh, another, another scheme. Well, she's got the, the song three, I think, with that's like three minutes and 33 seconds. Anyway, so a lot of people are like all about the three. But yeah, for Marx too, you know, people argue, but, um, you know, there are these, there's reality that is given to us in its Hegel turned right side up way through dialectical materialism. And the goal is to find the contradictions in capitalist reality and then to in order to instantiate revolution, you have to take the contradiction that you found in capitalist reality and contradict it again. I love it. I love it. So many contradictions. So many <laughs> contradictions. This is probably a good place since we've been talking about Marx and, uh, and Kierkegaard, um, our, our wonderful namesakes, to, to focus in on something that I noticed as I was reading through this time. It's really easy, I think, in this first part to tune out a little bit and just feel like Dostoevsky is really getting warmed up for the, for the main events. But I actually found this time around that I noticed there's a very important foil being set up for the brothers and the father over the course of this first part. And it's done subtly, but I, but I think it's important. And that comes in the character of this, uh, this man, Musoff, who is a, a neighbor of Fyodor Dostoevsky's, he's sort of on the equal social footing with him. They're both landowners. So they're both sort of minor gentry figures. They're not rich by any means, but they are well off, right? They're not peasants, at least in, uh, in terms of their monetary value. And, um, and Musoff comes with Fyodor to the monastery um, near the beginning of part one when uh, Fyodor is going there to settle this dispute with Dmitri, Musov sort of tags along, sort of as an observer. I'm not even, you know, it's not entirely clear why he decides to come and be with them. Um, but he's this really fascinating figure to me. He's a very minor character, but to me, he represents so much of what Dostoevsky disdains in the 19th century. 
He's not religious at all. He has no interest in religion. It says, Dostoevsky notes, he probably hadn't been to, to church in 30 years. But he's very concerned with decorum. So he's basically, he comes, he spends his entire time at the monastery being embarrassed of Fyodor and letting everybody know, hey, 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 that's not me. I'm not, the, I'm not like this guy. I, you know, he, I don't really even know him. Don't judge me by him. Because um, Fyodor spends the whole time saying these awful things to the monks, making fun of them, um, having these outbursts of raw emotion where he's like flinging himself at Father Zhojima's feet, begging for forgiveness, and then he'll tell some dirty story, right? He'll turn around and, and tell a dirty story. And so Musaf hates this. He's, he's just, he ends up leaving. He's supposed to have, they're supposed to be having dinner with the, the, um, the head of the monastery and Musaf gets so upset at Fyodor that he just storms off and leaves. It occurred to me in this read-through that Musaf is really a, a nice representation of what I'm going to call 19th century liberalism. He is a representative of that sort of particular class of small business entrepreneur. He's a man who's worked his way up in the world through sort of careful saving. And he doesn't have a, a religious sense, but he has a, lot, a strong sense of, of custom, tradition, and decorum, while also being joined to this idea of uh, philosophical and material and political progress that seems to be inevitable. He finds himself very appalled when Ivan, sort of as a joke, or, or, but sort of not, suggests that the church and the state in Russia should be brought together, joined together. And he's horrified by this. He thinks it reeks of papal superstition. He wants there to be sort of the church there to decorate things and look nice, and then the real stuff to happen in the political world to move forward through political liberalism, which probably for him means some sort of uh, check on the czar's power and a movement towards a representative democracy. And what's great about Musaf as a character is that he is totally obnoxious. He's awful. He's, he's maybe worse than... Fyodor is because Fyodor at least has some sense of the stakes that are going on. Fyodor is an awful person, but he has enough passion left in him to recognize that he's an awful person and to sort of swing back and forth between doing these terrible things and then being very abjectly sorry for doing, having done them. Musaf, meanwhile, is just sort of standing still constantly. He never does anything. And, and that put me in the mind uh, of both my namesake, um, Soren Kierkegaard, but also our, our uh, absent friend, um, Nietzsche, as well, um, both of whom are very concerned with this idea of 19th century liberalism being this staid, solid, immovable object that's not interested in actually developing the person. Uh, Nietzsche makes cracks about how the Germans, ever since they got a, a government, a unified government, have just been completely useless. They're terrible because they've lost the spirit that made them great. Nietzsche Kier doesn't love the threes either. No, <laughs> no, he does not. Um, Kierkegaard as well, right? In, in the present age, he talks about the public being this force of liberalism that basically just stalls everything out. He said in, the, in a revolutionary age, at least you get this outburst of emotion. What you get in the, in the present age is this deadening silence. And that's who, who Musaf is as a character to me. He's just this sort of deadening silence in the middle of the book. I wanted, to, I, wanted to, I wanted to jump in on a few things you said there. You almost said it exactly when you said, you almost said small business owner, which is in our election climate. It's such a... <laughs> Musaf, are, own, he owns a boat dealership. 
<laughs> well, I was I was thinking more along the lines of, you know, he's this story of the enlightened, empowered capitalist who owns a business and is therefore, you know, a valued voter. There are certainly valued and non-valued voters, right? And this is sort of at the top of that hierarchy, this kind of character. I wanted to, to like read quickly the intro of Musaf and then maybe um, say one thing or two about who this, who this brings up in our age and what kind of ways that literature can speak beyond its time. Peter Alexandrovich Musaf happened to return from Paris. Afterwards, he lived abroad for many years, but at the same time, he was still a very young man and among the Musafs, an unusual sort of man, enlightened, metropolitan, cosmopolitan, a lifelong European, and at the end of his life, a liberal of the 40s and 50s. In the course of his career, he had relations with many of the most liberal people of his epoch, both in Russia and abroad. He knew Proudhon and Bakunin personally, and he particularly liked to recall and describe, this was already near his journey's end, three days of the February Revolution in Paris in 48, letting on that he himself had almost taken part in it on the barricades. This is one of the most delightful memories of his youth. He had independent property valued according to the old system about a thousand souls. His splendid estate lay just beyond our little town and bordered on the lands of our famous monastery. So I think that brings up a lot of things that um, resonate with sort of popular figures of liberalism then and now, right? I think of the kind of people who sort of in the French intellectual tradition, they have to describe where they were in the in the May 68, you know, uprising and all of their bona fides come from where they were then, what they were doing. I right? love I love that in the case of Musaf, it's like he almost took part in the revolution, <laughs> like which I guess is good enough when you're in Russia, right? It's probably not good enough if you're in France, but he can say, I right. was there and I almost participated. Yeah, and we should say about Dostoevsky too, when he was younger, he was interested in leftist radical political activity. Yes, yeah. And then famously was imprisoned, brought before the firing squad, I believe, mm -hmm. and then at the last second pardoned and released, I believe. So that clearly you know, informs a lot of his writing as well. But um, another thing I want to say here too is like, if you think of somebody like um, a lot of the, until 2016, failed presidential hopefuls who were simply businessmen, right? Um, R.I.P. Herman King. <laughs> right. And these people who want to be more politically, but they're sort of on the fringes. They have a lot to say. They think that they're opinion is sort of supremely valued because of their station in society, right? Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's Trump or Mark Cuban or a lot of people like society allows that kind of person to have a big voice, right? And I think Musaf sort of resonates, that character resonates, you know, today, certainly in American there, climate. There's a sense of which uh, I think part of what you're saying is like wealth is its own credential um, for these people, right? Because I have earned all of this money, that gives me some sort of some sort of say in what goes on because I clearly know something. And he also reminds me a little bit to, to to sort of mix up our political symbols here. He also reminds me a little bit of what we might call these days like the PMC, the professional managerial class, in that it, he's more educated than those around him somewhat, and he's been places, right? And so there's this sort of 
you get this mantra for a lot of people who've been to college and said, oh man, I've studied abroad, so I know the world, right? They've gone there, they've done these things, and then they've come back and they're still assholes. <laughs> but I think that's true of Musaf, right? He really is living on this, these glory days, these faded glory days of his cosmopolitanism. There's a great part, just after this, he brings his like nephew with him to the monastery and it says, well, the nephew's probably going to go to school in Moscow, but Musaf's busy trying to convince him to go abroad with him on a trip and then study abroad, Right. And so he's trying to kind of relive his glory through his nephew. And so there's a sense in which these people, right, they think that the sort of the stances that they take and, and the life experiences that they have somehow qualify them to have something to say, um, even if they're full of hot air. So here's another another piece of this liberalism. I want to go to a quote here um, that you you brought to my attention. Um, so all credit to you. This is a slightly different context, but I think it's saying the same thing. So, so Father Zosima is this monk who lives kind of by himself within the monastery. He's a hermit. So he's, you've got all the monks in the monastery. They're doing their monk thing. And then he's like even holier than everybody else because he's off by himself living in a little hut. And he's revered as a man, a healing man. So people come to him from all over. And in particular, the women come to him. And one of the women who comes to him is this wealthy woman, and she's got a daughter, uh, Lisa, who's got some illness. Lisa's mother comes to him, and she's talking to him, and she ends up sort of having a, a, a bit of a breakdown and saying, like, she doesn't know what to do with her life, and she, she basically hates herself and hates her life. And Zosima tells her in response this sort of parable, because she says, she says in particular, right, she doesn't feel like she's able to love anyone, doesn't feel like she's really able to love anyone. And, and this, is, this is how Zosima responds. He says, I heard exactly the same thing a long time ago, to be sure, from a doctor. He was then an old man and unquestionably intelligent. He spoke just as frankly as you, humorously, but with a sorrowful humor. I love mankind, he said, but I am amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular that is, individually, as separate persons. In my dreams, he said, I often went so far as to think passionately of serving mankind, and, it may be, would really have gone to the cross for people if it were somehow suddenly necessary. And yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone, even for two days. This I know from experience. As soon as someone is there, close to me, his personality oppresses my self-esteem and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours... I can begin to hate even the best of men. One, because he takes too long eating his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become the enemy of people the moment they touch me. On the other hand, it has always happened that the more I hate people individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity as a whole. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful quote. Um, and I think it, I think it encapsulates so much of this, this sort of liberal attitude. And again, we don't mean this in the, necessarily in the sense of um, our contemporary political moment, right? But this, this sense of an abstraction of humanity. I love humankind. I, it makes me think of the people who are always, who are convinced that these are like the super um, utilitarian people who are convinced that the best thing they can do with their life is to get a good job that pays them a lot of money and then spend a decent chunk of that money buying malaria nets for people in Africa and just like airdropping malaria nets on people, right? It's this, it's this idea that 
they have abstracted their human responsibility and they find themselves very in love with the idea of people and the idea of group, big groups of people, but totally unable to love people as they actually encounter them in the world. And, and that strikes me as a very conservative insight. So again, small C conservative insight. Um, and maybe conservatives are, are, are prone to the opposite problem, which is that they're good at loving individual people, but they're bad at then abstracting and figuring out how to make things happen as a group. But, but there is something striking about that, right? Especially if you sort of adopt Father Jojama's perspective of um, the necessity of, of Christian love, right? Christian love is not this abstract, um, indifferent love, right? It's a love that actually gets down and, and meets people and loves them as they are, even and perhaps especially when they're really freaking irritating and you don't like them, right? Um, this is, that's exactly what Dimitri's decision is about, too. Yeah, say more about that. Well, it's precisely, you know, this, these two figures, one of which is entirely proper, entirely unwilling to be debasing or put someone else in a difficult position. And then the other is entirely willing to spite people and spite herself and to sort of go to the nth level of baseness in any situation just for the sake of it. And I think that's one of the biggest questions that Dostoevsky is wrestling with in so many of his works is can Christian love really tackle that problem mm. of people willing to be uh, in the words of Dennis Rodman as bad as they want to be. <laughs> but yeah, I, I liked your point about effective altruism though. I think it could go the other way as well. The effective altruist could be seen as potentially the good guy in this scenario too. But I, I liked your reading of it that that effective altruist is unwilling to get into the mess of human problems, right? There has to be some sort of philosophic calculus in the old utilitarian term for how to help people. Right. And Dostoevsky That's why they don't... hates that idea, right? People exactly. Aren't, people aren't able to be helped in a simple way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why you have this idea of like, and again, I don't want to bash too much on the effective altruists because I think malaria units are a good thing, but there's a sense of which like, because I'm doing, I'm, I've calculated the way that I can do the most good that somehow then absolves me of doing the, the good that's demanded right in front of me. So I can just walk by the homeless person on the park bench and not give them a second thought because I know it's not the right thing to give them money because they're just going to spend it on whatever booze or something. I've calculated this out. I got to save that $10 to send it to the kids in Africa who need malaria nets. And so there's an abstraction and, and, and a really a, a refusal to see the humanity of that person in, in that moment. And that's, and I, I, I actually, I really like the example that Joshua gives here because he captures something, right? Which is that in a lot of ways, we're really good at loving people as a concept but then when they have that one thing about them, that you're there and you're up close with them, it's that one thing. It's not even a big thing. It's not a moral flaw. It's that one irritating thing that they do. Um, they crunch a little bit too loudly, right? That just drives you freaking insane. For my wife, it's when I leave the cabinet doors open. Um, she hates that. And rightly so. It's annoying. Um, I hate that too. 
<laughs> right? I'm, a, I'm history's greatest monster in that moment because I haven't closed the damn cabinet door. Because I don't think he's condemning that. I don't think he's condemning a sense of wanting to love mankind as a whole. But, but then how quickly that breaks down in the face of actually having to do the thing that's right in front of you with, yeah, its, I, with its particularities. Yeah, he goes on to say, uh, whereas active love is labor and perseverance. Yeah, I think effective altruism is like, I, don't, I wouldn't bash it at all. I think it's, it's fine. But I do think Dostoevsky's point is that uh, there's something flawed in the sense that social progress is calculable. And yeah. even were one to have millions or billions to devote to specific problems, that's, that's itself a reaction to something, right? It's a reaction to an existing problem that someone had to have seen and in, in Dostoevsky's sense, you know, smelt that problem or felt that problem really, right? And somewhere someone is suffering bodily through mm-hmm. a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And someone who's not usually the effective altruist um, is helping that person in their suffering yeah. with a, with a, in a bodily way, right? Um, with their like human touch or care or contact or proximity. And I think he's, you can be an effective altruist and still do the latter, but not necessarily is all I would say. I think, I don't want to get us too far off the beaten path here, but I think there's a reason that effective altruism often goes hand in hand with a sort of Silicon Valley libertarianism. Right, I was going to bring up Andrew Yang too as Musaf. Um, no, Andrew Yang. Though I love Andrew Yang, but I mean like that's a, that's a parallel, right? That's good. I love that. I love that. And uh, Marianne Williamson is our Alyosha, I think. So <laughs> she wanted to save us all. But, but thinking about that, what fascinates me about sort of Silicon Valley tech bros, and I, I don't have any problem bashing them, is... Oh, Yang is not a Silicon the, Valley No, Yang, he's, he's, he's just adjacent to them. But um, <laughs> what's, what's fascinating to me about them is that, that all of that stuff goes hand in hand with this interest in transhumanism and the idea of escaping the body. Right, and, and, well, we gotta and get to a different. We gotta get to a different book for that. I'm sure we could, <laughs> we could do a whole podcast on that. We'll come back to transhumanism sometime. But 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 very briefly, I I just want to bring it back to your point, which is that that the um, from Dostoevsky's perspective, or at least Father Zhuzhma's perspective, right? True Christian love is the ability to bear things in the body, to bear other people's sufferings alongside of them in a physical bodily way, and that's something that's extremely repulsive to that to the to to the transhumanist technology will save us Mm -hmm. right we want to get perfectibility of the body Um, we want to really eventually escape the body because there are those imperfections there and so we have to do our best to get get away from there yeah i like that i like that point a lot i would i would put it too as like in this sense christian love is about incarnation right both uh divine incarnation and a human incarnation right that cannot be done away with or obviated in any way and a a renunciation of bodiliness itself is sort of the opposite pole of that right Mm. yeah yeah i like that yeah and then you have so then you have the struggles in the middle where where most of us are right (laughs) which is (laughs) we you know we get dimitri and fyodor who do not have any problem connecting with the bodily, um, but they have problems maybe controlling the bodily. So that's going to build as we go into part two is thinking about what the body is there for. And we're going to get to some really fascinating parts 
really about the body in part two um, when we get there. Well, Carl, um, let's move on for now. What, what else do you want to talk about from part one? Well, you know, as Carl bookmarks, I got to bring up this whole debate about the church and the state, their separation or mutual imbrication or whatever it is. Yeah, I found that fascinating too. This is a very strange argument. Essentially what's happened is this. Ivan, who again, reminder, is the atheist of the bunch, has been making this argument in a sort of legal circles in the big city that essentially the church should not have uh, separate courts, that the courts should be basically merged together. Am I understanding that correctly? I believe so. It's a little bit confusing because it's, I think, bound up in some weird, obscure 19th century Russian legal concerns. Uh, but, but what do you want to say about this, I, this kind of strange idea that's forwarded there? Well, I mean, did you take his point? Did you think it was fair? He makes a counterintuitive point for someone who's an atheist, and we assume to have that sole view, which is that the state requires a sort of church's grounding or foundation that there can't really be a state without first a church having built something there. And it really came to a head for me um, at this point on page 69, there exists no law of nature that man should love mankind. Yeah. Say more about that. Is there a sense, what you're getting out of this is that Ivan thinks that some sort of church is necessary in order to lay this foundation of a sort of spiritual progress of mankind, because otherwise what we're left with is a sort of base nature. Yeah. And he, he reasons this out to the point of, and I'm quoting, so that where mankind's belief in its immortality to be destroyed, not only love, but also any living power to continue the life of the world, would it once dry up in it. Not only that, but then nothing would be immoral any longer. Everything would be permitted, even anthropophagy, the worst of all crimes. Yes. <laughs> so I think that's really where it came to for me. But it, it's really interesting to think about, you know, law, revolution, turmoil. You know, the, the 2010s is, is filled with, you know, who, which ruler is in fact adhering to the rule of law. <laughs> when is it being bent? When is it being broken? You know, around the world. And it just made me think about this point, which is sort of the ultimate grounds for following laws or from which source does that come? And Ivan is saying counterintuitively, it's the church, not the state. It's, a, it's an idea from the church that grounds the ideas of the state, all of them in a way, because we need a belief in immortality in order to go on with some sense of natural law. Yeah. Because there is no natural reason to believe that man should love mankind, either in the general or the particular, right? Yeah, yeah. So what do you make? I mean, this is very often these days sort of completely the opposite. When you hear um, from very strident um, atheists or online or whatever, probably online um, or like in your middle school classroom, right? They always say, they always say something along the lines of, well, I don't believe in God, but I'm a good person. This, this strikes me as a much more challenging and complex view, 
right? Because Ivan doesn't believe in God. He doesn't, he's, he, he doesn't believe in immortality, but he still posits it as, a, as in some sort of necessity grounding human society. Um, so, so yeah, this is where the, you know, the, did God create man or man create God, you know, kind of debate comes from, right? And uh, the response to that, you know, you'll get like a Dawkins, who I think is okay at it, or Sam Harris, who I think is not very good at making this argument that, you know, our moral precepts are somehow evolutionarily brought up, brought together, you know, or brought up, or they can somehow take this attack that, that well, that's just a belief we have, you know, a belief out of nowhere, right? Or a belief out of, you know, evolutionary history. Why ought we to care about it, you know? Mm-hmm. For what for what reason is it worth keeping mm-hmm. in, you know, the the wasteland of ideas that have failed in evolutionary history, you know? Why ought we to be good? Mm-hmm. There's not a very satisfactory answer there. And I think for someone like Ivan it strains at him that the better answer is, well, because there's some sense of immortality mm-hmm. in a theistic worldview, right? Mm-hmm. He really wants that kind of answer. And I think he and Dostoevsky see that people are attuned to that kind of answer. So sometimes you see in debates, people will say something like, the universe has no requirement to make sense or to make sense to you. And that that's like a, I think an intellectually fair argument. You know, I think it's quite fair, but people don't like it, you know, whether, <laughs> whether they say they like it or they don't, I've found that that argument never convinces anyone. Mm-hmm. People have an expectation for the universe to make sense because religious worldviews have given that expectation for a long time with, you know, a high risk, high reward, story about immortality right Mm -hmm. and so to say all of those stories of that kind ought to be bracketed and we all ought to stop and ask whether or not they're even justified as a kind of story that doesn't work in convincing people very often so i don't know these are some of the things that i think ivan is wrestling with so even just on a it's almost a pragmatic argument for from ivan's perspective is that if you were to do that, I mean, so, so Voltaire, of course, famously said, or maybe he didn't say, and we just quoted on Goodreads or whatever, but right, uh, you know, this quote about if, if God didn't exist, we would have had to invent it, didn't him, that's not English, but um, right, but, but Ivan's maybe framing it much more strongly, right, which is that if you wrench away the idea of immortality from people, it's going to destroy society in some sense. People are going to go, it's, it's, and it's not because there's any necessarily like a, a, a logical syllogism that you build up from, from the existence of God to morality. It's just that it's so foundational to the way that people actually experience their lives that you take that away and there's just going to be chaos. Yeah. And I mean, he's literally making a pragmatic argument here about like how, the laws ought to work and ought to be structured. Right. Um, that's what his paper was about. So he's definitely thinking with sort of horror, perhaps, um, at his own idea that that's the way it ought to be. I would say in this sort of different direction, there's a lot of really interesting stuff. Again, bringing this into the present here about 
what kind of identity would, if any, ground either the church or the state in the way that this debate is going on in the book right here. So clearly the two poles at this moment in the text are religion and nationality, right? Mm -hmm. But both of those sort of in, I think, what the average person would take as a how things have played out into the present. Both of those identifiers as someone's first identifier have more competition now, right? And, you know, you want to call them the culture wars or all kinds of different things. What someone identifies as, right, has become incredibly politically charged language. And it's usually not national American or Russian or Filipino or whatever as as much it is um, something sort of much more deeply personal and individual, right? And that's a switch from a mass identifier in this old way between, you know, nation and state and a different kind of mass or sometimes more individualized senses of identity. At least, at least I think that's one way to think about it as the capital C church even possible and is really maybe even the state even possible in our current situation. Right. Yeah. I think that's trying to, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is that maybe all identities, there's no capital I identity anymore. You know, you're bringing to mind, to, to my mind, at least um, the work of Charles Taylor um, who focuses specifically on religion, but really I think is bro- more broadly applicable uh, as you're pointing out. I think that's a really brilliant um, observation. You're sort of, extending Taylor's idea, which is that secularization is not about the loss of belief, but it's about the complication of belief and the, what he calls the fragilization of belief. And so belief in, as he's looking at it in religion in particular, can no longer exist as sort of this a priori thing that uh, like a substructure of your life or something like that. It now exists as something chosen but in that very act of choosing, what you end up with is something that's more fragile because you you understand the other options in front of you, out there in front of you. Yeah, the, the marketplace of identities is flooded as, as opposed to before where it was like Walmart yeah. or not. Right, that's, uh, yes. That's still true for some of us, by the way, who live right. in rural, rural Nebraska. Right, we, of course. We, we shop at Walmart or we don't shop at all. I think you're really onto something here, Carl, because it, what you're suggesting is that that fragilization has really extended to all aspects of life. So what, who we are no longer extends from what we've been given. It, it only comes from what we choose to make of things. And, and that's, you know, it, some people find that very liberating and other people find that very um, terrifying staring out into the abyss. And there's a sense in which those big poles may no longer hold or at least in the temporary in, in our current moment may, may not hold or if they're held to they have to be held very tenuously and so and, th- and there's some sense in which you have that overcompensation right and, and to look at our, our our present political moment you have people you know i think a large part of the fight over what it means to be an american in this present moment a lot of that the fight over what it means to be an american on both sides is a, a, a result or a symptom of a feeling that we no longer have that unified sense of what it means to be an American. And I think again, what it, whatever it means to be any category has now become 
it's part of any the culture. Category. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And so the people who are insisting that they are American very loudly to the other side are doing so out of a sense of insecurity more than anything else, but on both sides, even the people, right. These are the sort of gun toting people who, who are, you know, flying the weird, like half Confederate, half American flags who say they're super patriots, right. That's a performance of that identity that you wouldn't have necessarily needed a hundred years ago. Right. That's a production of, of this weakening of the ident of, of the, the broader identities. And, and, and you see that again in, in many other cases as well, many other forms of identity as well. Yeah. I think, yeah, the point I was trying to make there too, is that there's this idea from Hegel, the Sitlikite is the thing that grounds either the church or the state in its commonness. I hear, I hear some, um, I hear some music playing. Is it time for, <laughs> is it time for Carl's Corner? Welcome to Carl's Corner, everybody. This is the part of the show where Carl comes on and explains an extremely abstruse philosophical concept for us all, and uh, we are smarter for it. Carl, take it away. Yes, thank you, Soren. It's time for Carl's Corner. Our begrudged father, Hegel, gave us this idea that that is, you know, rooted in this in this passage that we just read about Ivan's argument here for either the the church or the state. And I, I thought I'd read this small paragraph about what the Sitlikite is and how it fits into Hegel's philosophy. Um, this comes from his book, The Philosophy of Right. And this is from Paul Redding. He's a contemporary scholar, wrote a great article on Hegel for, Hegel for the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy that I may or may not have just read. He writes, first of all, in Hegel's analysis of Sitlikite, the type of sociality found in the market-based civil society is to be understood as dependent upon and in contrastive opposition with the more immediate form found in the institution of the family, which is the structure of our book, Brothers K. A form of sociality, the family, a form of sociality mediated by a quasi-natural intersubjective recognition rooted in sentiment and feeling or love. This dependence shows how anthropological determinations do not simply disappear with the development of more psychological ones. They are preserved as well as negated, as in the pattern of what is aufgehoben. It also shows the mutual dependence of the determinations of the singularity of the atomistic subjects of civil society and their particularity as members or parts of holistically conceived families. Here Hegel seems to have extended fixed legally characterized notion of recognition into the types of human intersubjectivity earlier broached by Hölderlin and the Romantics. In the family, the particularity of each individual tends to be absorbed into the social unit. One is a part of one's family. Giving this manifestation of Sitlikite a one-sidedness that is the inverse of that found in market relations in which participants grasp themselves in the first instance as singular, einzeln, self-identical individuals who then enter into relationships that are external to them. Okay, end quote. What Hegel's trying to get at here and what Redding's summary really 
enlightens for me anyway, is the, this, this contrasting sense of worldviews. On the one hand, either church or state, whichever you think grounds the other, um, you have a Sitlakite-based society, right? And people are first parts of some larger unit. However, as Dostoevsky is writing, this whole worldview or, you know, Western worldview is waning. And on the rise is the market-based, individual-based worldview, you know, that comes, you know, from the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, the American Revolution. Human rights determine what there is, and therefore the, the single unit of the liberal and liberated human person who is able to enter into contracts freely and who isn't enslaved, that, that is the base unit of society now. The goal for that person is to find a unit to identify under, as opposed to before where that unit was given to them. Their partness was something that they understood just by growing up in a society. Your place was determined, um, you know, so this theory goes. Whereas, you know, the, the beauty um, or the horror in capitalism is you must find your place in society, right? And so the Sitlakite has waned and is gone. I think this is a better way of explaining what I was trying to explain before. And so, so we're now all in this morass of trying to identify correctly and find our place correctly, as opposed to before when the family, the state, and the church were three places where right away we should always know what our, our meaning is in relation to that to those holes that we fit into, right? And I think it's really interesting to bring this sort of dichotomy to the book and ask, what is Dostoevsky doing with it? He certainly has problems with the Sitlakite worldview. He, like us, is a, you know, bastard son of Hegel. He wants to get out of this Hegelian picture of how things work. But he is not, and this is where he's another small C conservative, he is not in favor of this new thing out there liberal capital market-based society that runs the world and might, you know, run the world into oblivion as we think about, you know, the climate crisis now. So where do we go between those two poles is another question that we can bring to this book. And that is the end of Cross Corner. Thank you, Carl. That was an extremely good explanation of an extremely difficult concept, as all Hegelian concepts are. Um, <laughs> if they even are concepts. Yes. Um, really good. Really good. You know, that brings to my mind again, and I'm sorry, I keep bringing this up, but it um, keeps coming to my mind. This brilliant essay uh, from Kierkegaard, the, the Present Age, and he talks about something similar, the dissolution of all bonds and his take on it, on it is this, is that for most people, this ends up being a terrible tragedy, but there is an advantage in it in that 
it forces you to not take for granted those bonds and your relationship in particular, he's thinking the relationship to the divine, to God. And for people who are able to, which may be a very small percentage of people, but for people who are able to then go through that unmooring and come to a place where they are able to choose God, they are able to attain some sort of truer religiosity than what's come before. But, it's, but he recognizes certainly that, that that comes with a whole lot of baggage for a whole lot of people um, as well. Yeah, I think one way to think about Kierkegaard's ideas is as a post-Sitlakite kind of Christianity, right? And that's another way to just say existentialism, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. Well, is there anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? I think I got to those two other big things that I'd sort of planned on. Yeah. Great. Well, I think we're going to call it for now um, on part one of the Brothers Karamazov. Um, if you'd like to read along with us, we are using the translation that is done by Richard Pevere and Larissa Volkonsky, pretty much the standard translation these days. Neither of us are Russian experts, so we can't tell you whether it's actually the best translation, but that's what they say. We've been using that, so we're going to be reading part two for next time, and we hope that you will join us um, as we go through that. Uh, this is The Reader's Karamazov. You can follow us on Twitter at The Reader's K. You can uh, contribute to our Patreon, uh, which would be a very wonderful thing to do at three tier levels. You can give $5 and be a Dimitri. You can give $10 and be an Ivan, or you can give $15 and be an Alyosha. Be an Alyosha, my friends. And you can reach us there at uh, patreon.com slash the readers Karamazov. You can follow us, um, hopefully by now, on any major podcasting service uh, through our RSS feed. You can also find our original cast at the readers Karamazov.podbean.com. Uh, and. Um, We'll come back next time. We're going to talk about the Grand Inquisitor. We're going to talk about some other wonderful things, some rotting corpses. Um, it'll be Carl, great. You'll be surprised by my my Carl Bookmarks' thoughts on the Grand Inquisitor. Excellent. That is what I'm looking forward to. That's the quality content we crave here <laughs> and attempt to monetize. So until, <laughs> we're very good sons of Hegel in that regard. Until next time, though, um, why don't you play us out, cat keyboard? <laughs>